a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Your morning companions for talk, analysis, and key perspectives on Utah's biggest stories on KSL News Radio. Always fascinates me as to what the legislature takes up in the final hours of the session. The session ends this Friday at midnight, Dave, and uh, one of the things on the agenda uh, has to do with feeding stray cats. <laughs> you would think this would be done. More on the local city level, you know, city ordinance. I don't know. Maybe there's there's a good reason to take up the feeding the stray cat legislation. I'll be honest. I've got a story, Debbie, okay. that will ah, terrify you when I tell you what happened when one of my neighbors was, quote unquote, Feeding the stray cats. And that is far from the only issue that lawmakers are looking into or looking at this week. We're going to dive into the $20,000 boost for first-time homebuyers. That is getting a boost as well on Capitol Hill. Yeah, it's 9.07. It's time for the launch. Sequence engaged. And here are three things that Debbie wants you to know. Countdown three. I saw that Senator Mitt Romney... uh, Weighed in on who he thinks the Republican Party will likely nominate for the top of the ticket. Not not Nikki Haley. No, not Ron DeSantis. No. Listen to what he told our very own Doug Wright on Sunday edition on KSL 5 this weekend. Look, I, I didn't think uh, Donald Trump would become the nominee of the Republican Party back in 2016. Uh, he did. And at this stage, I think he's by far the most likely to become our nominee in 2024. By far the most likely. That was a real shocker to me. I don't know if this is Senator Romney kind of trying to push the other potential candidates to get in the race before it's too late. Because you know he doesn't support a Donald Trump run. Countdown to... At 9.35, we're going to ask KSL 5 Television's Matt Gephardt, is this legal He's going to join us with what he found out about Utahns going to great lengths to avoid paying thousands in taxes by road tripping to Montana to register their cars, their boats, the RV, their RVs, where it's a fraction of the cost. So we're going to ask him, is the state cracking down on people who do this? And this guy saved how much? You saved over $8,000. $8,000. There are few things in this world that drive me as crazy as having to register my car every single year. (laughs) It is a straight money grab. Ah. Straight money grab. At what point do you get to purchase something and just it gets to be yours? If you bought a television and then you had to pay a registration tax on it every single year, 
that would be ridiculous, Pretty right? Good point. But when it's a car or a boat or a jet ski, everyone's yeah. like, "Oh yeah, totally. We got to do that." We don't drive TVs on the road, though, Dave. <laughs> what does that matter? <laughs> Launch countdown. One. Our top story um, is this: two Utah siblings uh, just found out about this by reading ProPublica. It's hitting the national national news. Um, two Utah siblings hold up in their mother's home. One is 15 years old. The other is 12. Live streaming day and night, saying they expect cops to show up at any moment to take them away and return them to their dad. It is a custody battle unfolding in Utah on social media. There's also a chance that they could come at any second. That's the reason why I'm still in here. Because they could come at any second and use reasonable force to take us. Custody battles are brutal. Are absolutely brutal. And I feel for kids that get caught in between two warring sides between parents having to choose and then again you have to ask yourself well what right do the kids have in these disputes how much should we listen to a 12 year old or a 15 year old when determining who they're going to live with and how much time they're going to spend with one parent versus the other Dave and The launch. Commence. Dave and DeGenevic. Dave and DeGenevic. Special coverage of the top local story. And the top local story featured in ProPublica. And the headline is this, Dave. Barricaded siblings turn to TikTok while defying court order to return to their father. They say abused them. Um, so that clip that I just played moments ago from that TikTok post by the 15-year-old boy was from January, anticipating cops could show up any time to return them to their dad. Um, and the ProPublica article states that they're at their mom's home in Utah. There's also a chance that they could come at any second. That's the reason why I'm still in here, because they could come at any second and use reasonable force to take us. And I feel terrible for the police officers that are now in a a situation where they've got to step in and enforce this court order. They, They have to go to the other parent. That is what the court order says. And if they refuse, then the only other option is for someone to physically remove these children from their home and take them to the other parent. I think there's some nuances uh, to that that I want to get into right now in terms of who gets custody and when. And we're going to also have KSL legal analyst Greg Scordis join the show with the question that you raised. Do the kids in a custody dispute uh, have any say at all? So I want to make it clear that this is coming from this ProPublica article. We haven't independently verified the allegations that have been raised by these kids. But there's these two siblings in Utah. They've barricaded themselves in a bedroom at their mom's home in defiance of the judge's order. This is according to what ProPublica is reporting um, to return to the custody of their father. And and that is, um, according to ProPublica, despite state child welfare investigators determining that he had sexually abused the children. But I want to make this clear. The father's attorney denies that allegation and told the publication that there have been similar false claims repeatedly for years. 
it, this just speaks to how brutal these custody battles can be, right? Whether it's true, whether it's not, uh, whether it can be proved, abuse is a massive allegation. Sexual abuse, one of the worst allegations. Uh, if it's true, these poor children. If it's not, what a lie. I mean, this is what is swimming in my head right now, Debbie, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. So in in um, comes this court order. I, I looked at the date. I think it was at the end of January, so just a few weeks ago, saying this, that the kids have been barricaded in the same room for weeks. Six weeks, I believe, is what it said. And the 15-year-old brother hadn't left the home, and the, the sister had only left a couple of times, and neither was attending school. And that police were then authorized by the judge to use reasonable force to unbarricade the children. Now, where they will end up is not directly into the dad's custody. There's more to this story. I want to dive into that when Greg Scordis, our legal analyst, calls the show. Dave Indigenovic. Dave Indigenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. Top local story this morning uh, comes to us by way of ProPublica. Um story with the headline that reads barricaded siblings turn to TikTok while defying court order to return to their father. Um, the story of these of these two Utah siblings hold up in the it looks like they're hold up in the bedroom at their mother's home, Dave. And then you have this judge in Utah who's issued an order. The police can use reasonable force to remove them. And let's remind our listeners this thing is being live streamed. We just went to this 15-year-old boy's TikTok to see if it was live streamed. What'd you see? Well, I'll tell you, you hear from the child's point of view what is happening. It's powerful. You listen to a kid talk about um, being sexually abused by a, a parent and not wanting to go to that parent's house. I mean, how could you not be moved if you're watching that video? And then you add an additional layer to it where it's being streamed live on social media. Now you're in just this incredibly difficult situation because you don't know what's going to happen you know, once there is a confrontation, yeah. which a court order demands there to be. Yeah. Reasonable force can be used to remove them. Um, here's a, just a short clip of the, of the many TikToks that are posted. Um, by this 14-year-old boy who is barricaded in a bedroom at his mom's home. There's also a chance that they could come at any second. That's the reason why I'm still in here, because they could come at any second and use reasonable force to take us. And we don't know if these allegations are true or not. That is that is not our decision to make. Like We, we can't determine that. That is why there's a court system. That is why you you put forth information and you have a judge that makes a ruling and the judge says you've got to spend time at both parents' house. For his attorney, the father has denied the allegations. Um, And the 15-year-old boy who's barricaded along with his 12-year-old sister, Greg, denies allegations that his mom is engaged in parental alienation. Um. Greg Scordis, or KSL legal analyst, let's just start there. This uh, this allegation of parental alienation um, that looks as though it's being lobbed toward the mom in this matter. Um, what does that mean exactly? 
Well, it, it, it means different things to different people. And I know that's not a good answer, but parental alienation isn't really a medically recognized diagnosis, but it's used a lot in connection with uh, child custody cases where one party claims that the children don't want to be with him or her because the other parent is alienating them. And it's also used, on the other hand, by people who are accused of sexual misconduct claiming, well, this is the result of parental alienation. I didn't really do it. It's just my spouse is convincing the children to say bad things about me. And so we actually have both of those (laughs) occurring in this case where the judge is saying, well, well, some parties are saying that the mother is alienating the children from the father, and others are saying the father is using that as a shield to protect him from allegations of sexual and emotional misconduct. Greg Scordis, our KSL legal analyst, custody battles are brutal, uh, and they are, they are such a strain, but oftentimes it, we don't really know what the rights of the children are because it's a judge and the parents that are kind of battling things out. What kind of say do kids have when it comes to custody? Well, in this case, and in a lot of others, Dave, the state has appointed what's called a guardian ad litem for the children. So mom has a lawyer and dad has a lawyer. And then the state provides a lawyer. Uh, These are usually from the attorney general's office who acts as a representative for the children. And this lawyer has weighed in and and sort of is seemingly siding on the on the side of the father a little bit and claiming that there does seem to be some level of parental alienation. But the judge has ordered what's called the reconciliation or trying to get the, the, the family back together and has done that in a real sort of limited way such that the dad can now see the children and get custody of the children. But to protect any chance that there's abuse, the children will not be spending the night with the father. They'll be with a family, a relative. Yeah, that, that seemed to me, Greg, uh, to be um, a, a reasonable middle ground that the judge came up with, that, that these children will not just be handed back to their father, but that they would indeed be housed at a relative's home. Um, but apparently that doesn't seem to be moving the needle at all. And, and by the way, we're on the phone live with KSL legal analyst Greg Scordis. We've asked him to weigh in on this very public uh, custody battle where two Utah siblings, a 15-year-old boy and his 12-year-old sister, appear to be barricaded inside a bedroom inside their mother's home. Uh, their story making national headlines over the weekend, and we're here uh, kind of breaking down what we know and what we don't know about it. Uh, but I thought that judge, when I, I read as much of the order as I could, it was um, dozens of pages long this morning, um, and it did seem like he came up with something that was kind of a, a good middle ground for both all parties, the kids included. Right, and we usually want to have reunification. I mean. Uh, Children have two parents, and and the law, and especially the law in Utah, seems to support the fact that both parents should have equal access to the children. And dad hasn't had access for some time for whatever reason, either because of something he did or because of something mom did. But the judge is saying, look, let's start this reunification process slowly with the children. Come and see dad for a couple hours at a time. Supervise. Don't spend the night. Don't have fear that he's going to be alone with you and see how that goes. And then we'll review it after some period of time. And I think, like you say, Debbie, that's a really sensible, well thought out ruling by the judge to sort of try to balance the the interests of the children to be protected from an allegedly abusive father 
and the rights of a father who hasn't had anything proven against him at all uh, to be able to see his children. Greg, I want to talk a little bit more about this reasonable force aspect. The son is reportedly live streaming this uh, from his bedroom around the clock. So if there is an altercation, if the police do have to, what, break down the bedroom door on live on this live stream to remove the kids? Like, what, can you walk us through some of this reasonable force? Yeah, and that, that's, you actually spelled it out pretty well, Dave. I mean, the mother should just tell the kids to open the door and to make themselves available. But if she doesn't, for whatever reason, the judge has authorized the, the use of reasonable force. Now, that's just the police coming in and doing more than just knocking on the door and opening a door. If a door is blocked and barricaded, the police can use force to open the door. They can, they can uh, use a pry bar. They can use a hammer. They can use whatever. If the children resist, the officers can take them by force. And I don't mean by uh, any level of abuse, but to, to, to literally carry them away. If that means in cuffs or something like that, I would hope that it doesn't come to that, that the children will go with the police and they will be uh, reunified with their father at some point. And, I mean, there's an easy way and a hard way to do this. The judge is saying if they don't do it the easy way, I'm authorizing you, law enforcement, to, to do it the hard way. And and let's not forget, and I know we haven't, but there are two children caught in the middle of this. Um, and that that that's that in and of itself is is heartbreaking, Greg. Um, you, t- you talk about from the one hand, the kids are, according to the courts, not attending school and haven't, you know, hadn't left the home. Um, at, well, the, they said in the, their January uh, ruling that the that the brother hadn't left the home in, in weeks, and that the sisters only left a couple of times. So here we have a, a custody dispute unfolding with two kids in in the middle of it all, and it's it's and it's not the it's not the only case that this happens in. I mean, this happens time and time and time again. Yeah, and it, and with this particular situation, as you and I talked sort of off the air a little bit, I mean, we're dealing with a kind of older children. I mean, the boy's 15 and the girl's 12, right. and the courts courts will defer to them a little bit. I mean, it's not like they get to choose which parent they stay with, but they certainly have more input than, say, a five- and a two-year-old. Um, and so, and, and these kids are active in this uh, resistance against their father. They've barricaded themselves. They're, the, the boy's live-streaming it. I mean, they're they're taking a very a very aggressive role not to see their father. And I mean, something's going to happen here very shortly that, that someone's not going to like very much. Greg Scordis, thank you for joining us. KSL Legal Analyst. I know our uh, producer's been in contact uh, with um, other, like the attorney for the father. And I think we're trying to track down uh, the mom's side of the story as well. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll continue working behind the scenes to bring you the very latest on this case as it develops. And straight ahead, uh, KSL Television's Matt Gephardt calling in because he has found Utahns running to Montana to register their their cars, their their boats, their RVs, and they are saving thousands and thousands of dollars by doing it this way. So I'm going to ask him. Is it Dave and Dujanovic. Dave and Dujanovic. I, I got to ask Gephardt if this is legal. Um, so if you see people driving around town with Montana license plates, um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're residents of Montana. Um, there's 
I don't want to call it a scheme, but boy, if this ain't illegal, it ought to be. That's the category it falls into for me. <laughs> if it ain't illegal, it ought to be. So KSL 5 Television's Matt Gephardt uh, finds out that people are going to Montana to register their cars, their boats, their RVs, because you pay a lot less in sales tax on these vehicles. You saved over $8,000? $8,000. Jace says he paid $125,000 in Utah for both the truck and another car he used to drive. In Salt Lake County, the combined state, county, and local sales tax rate is 7.25%. So carry the one, he actually saved just over 9000 bucks. Holy smokes. What, what am I doing? I've been doing this all wrong my entire life. You said, if it's not illegal, it should yeah. be. Matt, if it's not illegal, it ought to be. If, am I off base on this? Well, uh, it is illegal Okay. In, in Utah. It's not illegal in Montana, who's perfectly happy to have you pay registration fees in their state. So, yeah, it kind of depends on, uh, I guess, which state's laws you think you need to follow. So so walk us through this. So, so somebody, what, takes a road trip up to Montana after they buy a new vehicle or I guess even a used one or a car or, you know, a car, a boat, RV, whatever the case may be. They, they road trip it up to Montana, stay for a, a day or two and then go, go stand in line at the DMV there. You're making it sound far more complicated than it actually is because you don't actually have to ever leave the state of Utah. Stop it. Um, if, you, if you hop online now, – now, the guy we interviewed in our story, and he was, his name's Jason, he was gracious enough to talk to us about this, this thing that potentially he was, he was doing was – well, not potentially. was against law in the state of Utah, which basically says you have to have the car – if you have the car for, quote-unquote, primary use in the state of Utah, you should register it in the state of Utah when you purchase it, meaning you're paying sales tax. Montana does not have a sales tax on cars. So when you, when you, what, what happens is people will, you say, go to Montana. No, you don't have to go to Montana. You can hop online. You can go to their, uh, the Montana Department of Commerce. You can register an LLC for a couple of bucks, and you can basically purchase the vehicle in Utah as a company car for your Montana LLC, and then you drive it as a company car, and that is what many are doing. And you say it's illegal here. Yes. But legal... So what? what's the crackdown? Is there a crackdown here in Utah? It's really, really tough. So as we interviewed the state's Motor Vehicle Enforcement Division, um, it's really hard because it's not, you know, if you ever make a road trip to Montana, you don't have to get new license plates as soon as you cross into, you know, Idaho and right. Colorado and Montana. You're allowed, there's, there's a window with which you're, before you have to get, you'll get a new license, get new license plates. And so how do you know if that Montana license plate right there is just some guy from Butte driving through, or if it's somebody who has been here for, I, I believe, the threshold is 60 days. Butte. Have you been to Butte? Yeah, my wife's from Butte. <laughs> I love Butte, but nobody's from Butte except for your wife. <laughs> my, wife is, my wife is from Butte. I've, I've been there. I've eaten the pork chop johns, which they all swear by, and is the worst pork sandwich on planet Earth, but they love it. <laughs> Have you been to the underground city in Butte? I have many times. I, no. I, I so and okay. Let's get off the Butte. I was just thinking you could come <laughs> up with. I think you could come up with a a, a place in Montana that more, more people are are familiar with. I don't know. Bozeman. We'll say we'll say, we'll say Bozeman. Kalispell, for example, Kalis, Whitefish, Kalis Montana. Bell. Okay, so 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 why? Well, okay, so here's the deal. Why doesn't uh, motor vehicle enforcement use license plate readers? 
to capture the Montana license plates and make people prove that they actually live in Montana? Well, you know, again, so it comes down to this window and they have the technology sort of uh, and they are trying to do that. So they've been there's been talk with regards to what they can do legislatively because there's some invasion of privacy things and, and what have you. Okay. But um, they're, they're, they are trying to move in that direction. They are trying to crack down. But when I try to press them on what exactly that looks like, the answers are few and far between. Um, mostly they would like if you are doing this, please stop. You're using Utah roads. It'd be nice if you paid the taxes that supported our schools and our roads and our whatever else. Um, but at the same time, they, they're, they're largely into safety enforcement is, of course, they're, they're the precipice of what they do. This is not a safety issue. This is a every once in a while they get lucky issue, right? Um, there is another potential side effect we found out. We talked to a couple of insurance companies, and insurance companies don't like it when you lie. So <laughs> if, you, if you say, I live in Montana, I don't, you know, we, we've done stories before about how you can have, you know, different insurance rates based on your zip code, let alone your state. So if you're paying a lower insurance rate, but you're really driving around on the streets of Salt Lake City, you could find yourself after a car accident with the insurance company saying, no, your policy is void on account of you, you, you failed to accurately say where you were doing it. Insurance companies, some of them love to look for excuses not to pay. Um, so, you know, that, that's something that is a real concern that people should look out for. So, Matt, this is... Uh essentially legally slash illegally dodging the sales tax, again, depending on what state you're in. Um, what does this mean for, like, annual registrations? Do they just keep registering with Montana? So, no. So what frequently happens is – well, okay, I guess that depends. Uh, and I, I, I should back up and say 100% in the state of Utah, it is against the law. The law is clear. It is written in code. If you primarily use it in the state of Utah, you must register it here. You know, so is jaywalking. How often is that enforced? You know what I mean? So, right. so, so that, that it is 100% illegal. What is happening is, is against the law in the state of Utah. And if you are a Utah resident, you're required to file a Utah law. And then the next question is, are they keeping it registered in Montana? Well, not necessarily. Uh, the guy you saw in our story, he would get the car registered after six months in the state of Utah to be compliant with Utah law in, in that way. Uh, some people, though, because the other thing you have to watch out for is our, our crummy air. And Montana, because it's, you know, big sky country, they don't care if you're blowing diesel all over the place. So there's not a county in the state of Montana where you have to pass an emissions test in order to get your car registered. So this isn't just new luxury vehicles. You know, that $50,000 Tesla where you can save, you know, 7.25% by getting registered somewhere else. This is maybe somebody who the state of Utah, the city of Salt Lake, the county of Salt Lake uh, or cash or whatever the case may be where the air is garbage. They don't want them on our roads. Uh, driving with, you know, a bunch of junk coming out of the tailpipe yeah. so they get it registered in Montana and they can kind of sidestep that. Well, just yet another reason to move to Butte. Um, there you go. <laughs> retiring in Butte. Uh, Matt Gephardt, KSL 5 TV. I found this report fascinating for all the reasons that you can imagine. I just can't imagine, though, Dave, uh, I feel like I would be driving around as a, as a marked person. Like, at some point, I'm going to get yanked over for... For, for some reason, and I'm going to have to disclose that I have schemed my way into saving $5,000. I am trying to process this, Deb. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's a way I could sell everything, move up to Montana for five minutes, <laughs> save a billion dollars, and then just re-register it all here in Utah. What a, what a, I don't want to say shady, it's totally illegal it's super shady but don't think for a second 
I'm not considering it. Okay. But you have a hot take on car registrations and taxes and all the other stuff that costs us so much money when we buy a car. What is it? It's absolutely criminal. <laughs> so, so okay. You're going to have to... <laughs> the well, government's well, crime against the people <laughs> is car registrations. If you don't want us cheating our way out of it, then stop requiring it. <laughs> In the meantime, you're scheming to figure out a way to get to Montana. So I don't you know. don't have to pay thousands of dollars in sales tax it's and tempting. Re- redo your emissions every year. Let's take live calls. But through this whole double illegality scheme discussion, I've kind of lost track of, <laughs> of, of, of what it is we're going to ask our <laughs> listeners to call in about. So what... You you nail the question and I'll call for the phone. I'll call out the phone number. What's I got to come up with the question yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. So is this genius? <laughs> is like road tripping and you don't even have to road trip. Is this is this genius or should you be thrown in the slammer for this kind of <laughs> shenanigan? I'll get the number. 801-575-TALK. 801-575-TALK. Taking your live calls. Dave and Eugene. Taking your live calls uh, about what KSL 5 Television's Matt Gephardt just called to inform us about, which is folks heading up to Montana to register their, their cars and avoiding paying sales tax. And also maybe avoiding emissions because Montana doesn't require it. Well, and, and Matt gave us even a better excuse to do this illegally. No, he said you don't even need to travel to Montana. In the past, you did. You had to like physically drive up there. But Matt explained to us and said, you can do this online. Live in Utah, but you register that vehicle in Montana where they don't have sales tax. You can skirt that 7.5% or 7.25% and save a ton of money. Yeah, the, the guy he interviewed for his story on Castle 5. We don't tax houses other than property taxes, so why should we not just do a property tax on this instead of sales tax? There you go. It's a great question. We don't tax houses, but we do tax high-end. And believe me, there are cars right now that people drive uh, that's about a mortgage payment for me. That's how expensive some of these high-end cars are. 801-575-TALK. I don't know how much money the state is losing out on from people who do this. The guy he interviewed said he saved about eight to $9,000 by doing this to two cars up in Montana. But imagine uh, an RV. Yeah. Uh, imagine a, a boat, a $50,000, dollars $100,000 boat that gets registered up in Montana. And then for me, I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't be want to be driving around as a, a marked woman because because I, I if if anybody gets caught going to get caught doing anything illegal, it's me, right? For no, I mean it would be something else I'd be pulled over for, and then I'd have to admit I don't really live in Montana, and then you know then the penalties are ridiculously expensive. So you're ending up getting busted and then paying all these penalties if you do get busted. Um, and then you're just right back where you started from anyway. So for me, it's not worth it. How about for you? Uh, I'm, I'm a big Freddy cat anyway. So I, I wouldn't do it just because I, I, I would not 
my stomach couldn't handle the ulcers that would develop in my stomach if I did get caught. I wouldn't do it. But I look at this and I think if I could save seven, eight thousand dollars, fifteen thousand dollars, depending on what I'm purchasing, how could you not be tempted? Because at its core, I look at registrations and sales tax on these high ticket items as robbery from the government. I, I just look at it as it's so wrong that every single year I buy a vehicle, I pay the sales tax, and then I've got to register it every single year. I've got a television. I purchased it. I don't have to pay a registration fee every single time, every single year that I use it. And if I, That's ridiculous. Well, no, I'm going to add to your fire there. Um, if I buy that car from you after you've already oh, paid yes. sales tax oh. on it, I pay sales tax on it again. Yes. that Every time, every time that thing gets sold, Cha-ching. the state is like, give me my cut. 801-575-TALK. Okay, lining up the phone calls. Diane and Layton, good morning. Good morning. You, 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 would you dare drive up to Montana or, guess sit behind your computer and register your vehicle in Montana, even though you live in Utah? I think it's a matter of integrity. I think if, if it's against the law, I mean, why do we go to church? To become better people and... Um, I just think it's a matter of integrity. If that's the law, we can always try to change the law, yeah. but not go not go against it. That's a great point. No, Ryan. thank you. Yeah. And I think you make a very a very strong point, and that's ultimately I think where I would land. But I think you could look at this, and if if I'm trying to justify it in my brain, I think the law is unjust. I think it's very strange the things we tax, the things we don't, the winners we create here, well, and the losers we create there. And if you buy a vehicle, I don't know the cost of a vehicle. I paid fourteen grand for my car uh, in twenty twenty, and it was used. So you know, I mean, I got a deal on it. Yeah. Um, was it twenty twenty? Yeah. Uh, so what's the sales tax? Seven percent, and that was. Just thousand bucks, thousand dollars on a fourteen thousand dollar car that was already, I think, eight years old, six, seven, eight years old when I bought it. So it's expensive, and I often thought, well, why are you taxing me at seven some odd percent for that car? Um, it'd be nice if maybe you, you halved that. You know, even give me give it give me a slap the, slap me with a three percent tax, but on a big ticket item like a car. That's a lot of money. We're loaded up. Okay, we got to blast through all these phone calls. Branson in Bluffdale, what do you think? Yeah, I've got a couple friends, a co-worker, and then two acquaintances that have all done the Montana thing. I can't believe how easy it is. Go online, do it, and they have, you know, never had any issue. What I did, actually, is since my parents live, um, I've got my dad up in Oregon. They don't have sales tax. And so I put his name on the title. I have Oregon plates, and I drive it down here. It wow. several thousand dollars. Wow. At least you're, at least you're close to being legal because you got Dad's name on the title. <laughs> uh, Mike from Taylorsville, what do you think of this? Would you? You're, you're from Montana. Would you go back there and register your Utah vehicles there? Would I? Oh, see, that's a tough question. Would I go back to Great Falls, Montana? No, no, no you I will not go right back to Great, Great Falls. Falls. Yeah. No. no, but here's the thing. Up there, it's very inexpensive to register a vehicle. I think with my 900-year-old Toyota 4Runner, it was like $35 a year. They come down to Utah, and it's 120 a year now. Yeah. Now, we all need to re- 
we all want to save taxes. Now, Utah's very expensive. So I'm with Dave. I would like to do it, but having USAA insurance, sorry for the plug, uh, they will not legally let you do that. Yeah, and it's illegal here in Utah. Matt Gephardt, our investigative reporter at KSL, said it was very clear. You can't do this. Doesn't mean that people aren't doing it anyway. John in Lehigh. What do you think, John? Hey, uh, Dave, once again, you are right as yes. per usual. <laughs> um, you know, as, as, as long as there's a tax that's, that's uh, keeping people from making a purchase, that's, that tax probably needs to be looked at. I think anytime somebody wants to, to buy a car, if, if the tax is so significant that it, it is a deterrent, um, yeah, that's a problem. I think a tax is, is one thing if it's just a little a little on the side, but when it's when it's that significant, yeah. I mean, yeah, people are just being re- resourceful at this point. Thanks, John. And to Dave's point about televisions, when you're taxing TVs and cars the same at the same rate, and cars are fifty grand, and a television is going down, down, down five, six hundred dollars. Yeah, uh, it can, I think, keep people from getting into that that next vehicle. The average cost of a new car is about thirty five thousand dollars, right? You're paying twenty six hundred dollars. Yikes. Sky from Ogden, we've got 30 seconds for your take. Would you dare go up to Montana to register your car, your boat, your RV? Yeah, I've got a bit of a different take here. I I bought my dream car last year, which is a a supercar. took me years to kind of prepare. And, you know, I, I did the Montana thing and my, you know, I had CPAs telling me to, you know, recommended it. And, you know, it was a $20,000 tax bill. Uh, for this this car wow and uh you know now i'm feeling like well i don't want to be a criminal you know so now i gotta go through and pay that bill and i'm I'm probably gonna register it in utah and it's but it's frustrating even my supercar was used you know it was two years old when i bought it and here here the state's getting another twenty thousand grand you know twenty thousand dollars from a car that's used it's just crazy yeah, and I think that that is where you have to look at it, and we have to really have a, a fair discussion about car registrations and sales tax. You, you couldn't purchase a home. There's no way you could buy a home and then pay 7.25% sales tax on it. There's some things we tax, some things we don't. Cars and house totally should be exempt. Dave and the Genevieve. Uh, There's a new report out uh, saying the U.S. has seen the biggest drop in home values since the 2008 housing crash um, and that the market, all told, has lost to almost two and a half trillion between June and this last December. This is all according to uh, real estate data from Redfin. I have their app. Uh, But, yeah, they compile all of this data and it gives us an indication of, well, prices are dropping. They're dropping. Which probably panics you a little bit if if you are a homeowner or you're looking to sell. But, you know, when one door closes, another door opens. Bad news for the sellers. This is great relief to buyers who've been getting the double whammy of record home prices and then interest rates that have been skyrocketing. They've doubled in the last year. It feels like good news, particularly for first-time home buyers. Right? I mean, if... Yeah, if kind of the forgotten buyer. Yeah. They get shut out. They get left behind because they're the first-time home buyer. 
you know, and they, they can't afford. Yeah, because the prices. The, the first time home buyer doesn't have the built up equity of selling a home, having a chunk of yeah. cash that they can use to help with closing costs and down payments, all of that stuff. The first time home buyer is overwhelmed. And with prices as high as they were, they were also shut out of being able to afford um, getting into that starter home. Remember the starter home? <laughs> Cute little, quaint, affordable, tiny starter home. So let's talk about the who benefits. Who benefits and how they can benefit by this dip in housing prices. And we went in depth on two different options last week. And so I want to revisit those. And I want to revisit them from the perspective of you're the dad and I'm the mom who's having a conversation with our first-time homebuyer kids Mm -hmm. about these options to help get them into a home. Which one would we recommend they go for? So let's start with Senate President Stuart Adams' pitch. And by the way, lawmakers I saw on Friday night had set aside $50 million in the budget for his first-time homebuyer pitch. And this is the legislation that's been proposed that would give first-time homebuyers up to $20,000 so that they can get in and make that down payment or um, come up with those closing costs, or they can buy down the interest rate. What we're seeing right now, this is a moment in time when interest rates have gone from 3% to 6%. You can take this 20000 It just isn't for their down payment. In fact, probably not a lot of it will be used for the down payment. They can buy down the interest rate. When you buy down the interest rate to a 3%, you bring more people into the market that can qualify these first-home buyers. And if you're scratching your head, and if you're a first-time home buyer, you may not understand that this is something that you can do. Right now, interest rates are 6.5%. Pretty solid across the board, 6.5%. So whatever the purchase price is, you're going to amortize over 30 years at 6.5%. Well, if you come up with some extra cash early on, then the mortgage lender will say, well, if you give me an extra $10,000, I'll drop it down to a 5.5% rate over 30 years. If you give me 20,000, I'll drop it down to four and a half percent. Whatever. I just made up those numbers, but that's kind of how it works. You pay down the interest rate and your payments lower. Yeah. And you so pay the idea less, less in interest over the life of your loan and, and that works for some people. Yeah. And, um, and you will save a lot more over the life of the loan. You'll pay less in a monthly payment. So it, it can be tempting to come up with that Ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars early on to buy down that interest rate, and under Senate President Adams' plan, the home would have. If you're going to take this twenty thousand dollar chunk, the home could be no more than four hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars uh, in value. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we're talking about starter homes being in the four to four hundred fifty thousand dollar range, and he feels as though this would be a catalyst for developers to build more homes in that four fifty and under range. Um, would you have to pay it back? No, you don't. Yes, if you sell the home within a, before the end of the loan. So, if you take out a thirty year loan and you sell the home before that, you would have to pay that back. And this comes out of the state 
fund, which is I see on that big big old chart they sent out to us on Friday night detailing how all the money is going to get divvied up in the budget. They're setting aside, looks like, $50 million for this. So I think this is going to be a, a real conversation that you could be, you and I could be having with our kids very, very soon because I know we have kids. You do too. I've, I've already talked to my daughter about this. Yeah, and it, it's very interesting because when you're a first-time home buyer, again, you may not have the closing costs available to you. You may not be able to come up with uh, a down payment or be able to buy down some of these interest rates. This could be extremely helpful. Now, that that's a different conversation to say, should the government be coming in and promoting first-time home buyers or subsidizing first-time home buyers? I, I don't think that should be the case. But that being said, it seems but, like this will pass. So that so, but that's kind of not the debate we're going to have right, right now. We're right. not going to get into a war over whether or not we yeah, should be doing it. In right. two thousand and nine or what ten, it was eight thousand dollars from the federal government when the right. housing market crashed. So we're not going to get into that right now. But we're talking. We're going to look at this in terms of what we're going to tell our kids yeah. and advise our kids. So so that's the government option. The private sector option is one we spoke to Mountain America Credit Union uh, and Kara Loftus who oversees their, their their mortgage program. And this is the new loan that she talked about that um, might help first-time home buyers or solve some problems for them. We at the Credit Union have designed, it is a first-time home buyer program. It is a loan that amortizes over 40 years, but has a balloon due in 15 years. So it allows the first-time home buyer to get into a home, start earning some equity or building that equity, um, and then at 15 years, they are required to either refinance it or pay a balloon payment. Typically, people don't stay in their home longer than 15 years, and they don't keep the same loan for 15 years. So it's a great program, again, for our first-time home buyers to get into a home and start building equity. Now, just to be very clear, this isn't a 40-year loan because at 15 years, you've got to pay it off. Either you've got to refinance it, you've got to sell it, you've got to uh, just pay it off yeah, that's not going to happen, but that it's the 15-year mark. Typically, people don't keep a loan or stay in the home that long, right. yeah. even on a first-time home. A first-time home, so it does allow them the benefit of starting to earn equity, so that when they are ready to move up and buy a bigger home, it gives them that opportunity. And if you're wondering, well, what does equity look like in 15 years? Because that's essentially the bet you're making that. The equity you're going to make in the the house is going to be so much better than what you would have hypothetically paid off. Uh, yeah. Okay. So for an example, so Draper, two thousand nine. That's fifteen years ago. Three hundred forty-two thousand dollars for a home. That was the average home. Now seven hundred sixty-one thousand. More than doubled in fifteen years. Should we scoot up to Layton? Yeah. Uh, two thousand nine, two hundred eighty-seven thousand. Today. Uh, a little more than $200,000 more in yeah. terms of equity at 489000 Uh American Fork, you were paying $350,000 if you bought in the American Fork area back in oh nine, And today, you would be able to sell that baby for $517,000. So you can see, yeah. uh, obviously, when you look at the, the housing prices right now, we had a huge spike over the last couple of years. But you can see that over the last 15 years, equity has gone through the roof. 
Can you expect a similar a similar jump in the next 15 years? I want to know what one you would lean toward when you're having this conversation with your your kiddos who are looking to get into their first home. I know what I've landed on because I've been thinking a lot about this over the weekend since we last talked about this last week. And and I'm very clear on why I would pitch the one plan to my kids and tell them not to go with the other plan. You want to hear? Yeah. Okay. Should we take live calls too? Let's do it. Okay. 801-575-TALK. First time home buyers. What do you think? Do you, do you like the idea of legislation helping you out $20,000 to help you get into that first home? Or do you think that the banks and the mortgage lenders have got it figured out with a different loan program for first-time home buyers. Do you like the legislative solution or do you like the private sector solution? Dave and the gentleman. If you're sitting down at the kitchen table like Dave and I will be and talking to our 20-something-year-old kiddos about uh, getting into their first home, which plan would you lean on or lean toward if your kids asked you? The $20,000 uh, for the down payment or buying down the interest that the state of Utah looks like they're going to soon be offering to first-time home buyers, or the private sector solution, which is that 40-year loan with a balloon payment due in 15. Yeah, I look at the 40-year loan a lot like the interest-only loans uh, that we used to have back in the in the late 2000s, you know, like right around the, the crash. <laughs> I there were a lot of bad loans being sent out. There were a lot of bad loans that led to the huge market crash of, of 2007, 2008, right? So I'm a little hesitant anytime we start manipulating loans. That being said, we've got to figure out a way to get first-time home buyers into a home because right now it's 6.5% interest rate. With the median home being somewhere between four hundred and fifty and five hundred and fifty thousand dollars, you cannot afford that monthly payment as a first-time home buyer. Take let's take phone calls before we weigh in on our takes on what okay. we tell our own kids. Eight oh one five seven five talk. If you were having this conversation with your adulting children, um, which plan would you recommend to them if they asked, David? Are you calling us from Omaha, Nebraska, David? I'm calling you from, I had to pull off the freeway. We're here attending grandkids in Provo. But this conversation, I had to get in on it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, well, it's, welcome. It's, to door, the... it's door number C. What is it? It's what? neither. Okay. Go okay. For it. Look at the Japan residential real estate market over the last 20 years. It is still negative. It's never come back. They're landlocked. You would think that we'd have a supply and demand issue in a landlocked area with population increasing. But no, there are other economic things that come to bear here. Look at the consumer price index in the 2008-2009 crash. We were inflated. Residential real estate, 37% higher than the CPI, and it came down below that. It took years to come back. Today, we are inflated 42% residential real estate across the United States compared to the CPI. So it's door number C, pay the additional $300 a month of rent, even though the rent and real estate market is inverted right now compared to a mortgage payment. 
and wait this thing out for two, three years, you're going to be able to pick up anything you want for a minimum of $100,000 less than what it's going for today. Well, I want want your crystal ball. Uh, David, thanks for the phone call. Craig from Salt Lake City, if you were presented... Presenting your kids with either of these options, um, which one would you lean toward? So I kind of missed the option thing. I had tuned in about five minutes ago, and they told me to call in. I just had a quick comment, sure. um, and maybe you guys can address this. But I was a realtor for over a decade, and to me, this this bill to help uh, homeowners, young homeowners, I think it's fantastic in terms of what they're trying to do. But I I don't like it because... The only reason I don't like it is because it looks like it's just intended to pad the pockets of new home builders. And that's my only problem. Unless they've changed the bill, they made it under to the fact where you can spend up 450000 to 20000 is great. I'm fine with all that. But you need to ask them why they're not making that available to all housing. Instead, they're saying only new construction because that totally smacks of a bill that's aimed to help developers more so than those first-time home buyers. And I've been, I've done this for a long time. So I'm just saying that to me is highly problematic. It's a one piece of pork that I just do not agree with in any way, shape, or form. They should open that up to all homes and under those given requirements, not just new construction. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's a great question. It's a great question. Because when you limit it to new building, and again, the, the idea, the reason, and we talked to Pre- uh, President Stuart Adams, who's the Senate president up on the, up on the Hill, he said the reason he's doing that is because he's trying to promote builders to not just focus on multifamily dwellings and big, huge houses to take the smaller profit margins by building first-time homes. And that's what developers have done is they've gone for um, the huge profit margins of multi-million dollar homes or, you know, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar homes. And they've kind of forgotten about the little guy, the first-time home buyer. I'm trying to read through the fine print on this legislative proposal. And maybe it's blaring somewhere on this page and I'm missing it. I don't see where it says first time, I mean, excuse me, new construction only. Um, And the reason um, I want to actually, can we get a text into uh, President Adams um, or his staff there, Caitlin, and ask him if it is specifically new construction? Yeah. Do you get that? I don't know, because I imagine, like, I think about a lot of these apartment complexes that developers go into and they gut them, and they turned them into condominiums, which became very popular in other states. Haven't seen as much of that here, maybe some of it, but that would, I don't know that that would qualify for new construction, yet that would be a great way of creating that first-time homebuyer experience from a major apartment complex. So we're going to ask him that to, to clarify that. Yeah, that, it's an important clarification. We want to make sure uh, that, that we have that very clear because that does, that's a game changer. If you're only rewarding new builds versus existing homes, that's a, that's a very important thing to find out. And uh, Craig, we'll, we'll look into that. Seth in Mill Creek. Seth, what do you think? I like both the options A and B because I, I'm originally from Florida, but I like Utah 
and the job market and everything. Mm-hmm. And it would be nice to have assistance to get into my first home because I would be considered a first-time home buyer. Well, welcome to Utah. Welcome to Utah. And if we can keep you here, awesome. Well, a lot of people actually will qualify as a first-time home buyer. In fact, when we talked to uh, President Adams, he said uh, – as long as you haven't purchased a home within three years, you would qualify as a quote unquote first time home buyer. I think that was Matthew when we said that, or maybe it was both of them. Um, but that was something we didn't know. We didn't know. Um, so we're texting to find out if we can get that detail on the first time, like whether it's a new build or if it's existing. So we'll let you know as soon as we know. What's your take, Dave? If you're sitting down at the kitchen table with the kiddos, what, which direction would you tell them to go? It's hard not to take the 20000 right up front. You will have to pay it back eventually. That we want to make that very clear. This is not just stimulus money. If you sell the house, if you, yeah, it, it sounds like if you carry that loan for thirty years, then maybe it will be waived. But if you sell it, you will have to pay back into that fund. So, but I look at it as that twenty grand would really help you get in the first time. That first purchase is so difficult. That mm-hmm. first time home is is the hardest. So I would say I like the 20 grand. Oh. Did I steal yours? You did. Well, here's here's why I would tell him to go with the 20 grand is is I do these I always do the the sleep test how well you're going to sleep at night. If you have a 15 year balloon payment in your face, you may sleep well the first 5 years of that, but not so well as that 15 years creeps up. Um and then the idea of refinancing or being kind of forced to refinance so you can get away from that. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Balloon payment. Well, now you got to pay refinancing, and that ain't free. Um, I think that 20000 upfront is cleaner, and you can make a choice as to whether you want to buy down the interest rate or you want to put more toward your, your, your closing costs or your down payment. I would definitely tell my kids, buy down the interest rate. Yeah. And I would also tell them, if it is indeed turning into a buyer's market, to ask the seller to buy down even more of the interest rate. So maybe now you're in the 5% or 4.5% interest rate range. So yeah, we both land on the same same plan for our kids. But the the 40-year uh, plan, and again, it's kind of like 40-year amortization. It's very specific, but you got to pay it off in 15 years. 
it can be very overwhelming. That's why you have to sit down with the experts, have them walk through all of these options, because it, it might make all the sense in the world for one family, and it might be a terrible decision for another. We just want to throw out some of the opportunities that are out there for first-time home buyers and try to make your best decision. Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with David Dijanovic. Point of order, point of clarification. It's like a little parliamentarian here. Um, Craig from Salt Lake City, we've got your confirmation. You are right. Uh, it is new construction only. Um, our producer reached out to the Senate and uh, the legislation we were just talking about, that $20,000 that could go toward a down payment for a first-time home buyer, which is proposed by President of the Senate, Stuart Adams, is for new construction. So you're right. I wasn't able to read that legislation quickly enough to see that, uh, but we want to make sure that uh, everybody was aware. And the reason it is for new uh, development is they're trying to encourage developers to invest in this first-time home buyer market, building homes that... Something you haven't heard about, they're called starter homes. Yeah. <laughs> Which we have, we've kind of run out of starter homes, right? Yeah. All right, let's get back to the Hill. Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with David Dijanovic. Some of you will think this is the most important piece of legislation ever discussed on Capitol Hill, and that is because you are cat lovers. And then some of you will be like Dave. (laughs) I have a cat. not, Not like this. Not a cat lover. If you are leaving food out for stray cats in your neighborhood, or you are seeking them out in the middle of the night to make sure they're fed, some of you will call them feral cats, others call them strays, others call them wannabe house cats. Community cats, I've heard. (laughs) Neighborhood cats. There's There's a proposal on Utah's Capitol Hill. It could force you to bring those bowls back inside in the evening. It's HB 505, for those of you who are playing along at home. Uh, House Bill 505. It would require people who care for those cats to feed them during daylight hours and daylight hours only. No feeding the strays overnight. Okay, can I tell you a quick little horror story? I have a neighbor that was doing this, that was feeding cats at night, would leave out a bowl for the cats. And uh, she was an elderly lady didn't have great eyesight. She was not feeding cats. She had a (laughs) horde of rats living in her backyard that she was feeding. She thought they were cats, but she was feeding feeding these rats that had grown the size of New York subway sewer rats. (laughs) But I would imagine a lot of people are not doing it like that. Who do you think's eating that food? You think the feral cat that is wandering around the neighborhood knows to come to your backyard? Probably not. Do you think it's the rat that's living in your woodpile? 100%. All right. Arlen Bradshaw, Senior Advisor for Community Relations at Best Friends Animal Society. Um, What do you think about Dave's rat story? (laughs) You know, we often hear about raccoons and maybe some skunks, but but not rats. So, you know, that's that's an interesting take. <laughs> you know, uh, about about ten years ago or so, the legislature adopted actually what's called the Community Cat Act, 
And, and what that does is set up a, an optional program that municipal animal shelters and localities can opt into for the management of these community cats. And what that does is it requires that cats are, are sterilized, that they're vaccinated, and it actually exempts most feeding bans uh, so that you can have these managed community cat colonies ensure that 100% sterilization and actually bring the cat population down. So the, the problem with this bill is, is that original Community Cat Act was an incredibly collaborative effort uh, between these community cat caregivers, the, the private nonprofit welfare organizations that participate in this type of work and municipal shelters. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Representative Ivory hasn't worked with those same groups in, in wanting to make this change. And, and I understand uh, that, that he has sponsored this to address that concern about wildlife potentially coming in. Um, but, but the reality is we don't, we don't think, we think that if we're dealing with raccoons or skunks or even rats, that, that there is more of a, a perhaps a, a different approach from the, the multi types of things that will attract those wildlife into neighborhoods, as opposed to just looking at this one single point. Because uh, the reality is, like, we don't want to create barriers between individuals who are actively feeding uh, community cats in a, in a managed way uh, and animal control. We want that to be a symbiotic relationship. We're all working together to manage these uh, free roaming cat populations. You know, and, and, and the story about the, the one-off person putting food out, you know, that, that's not what we would call a, a managed community cat colony anyways, you know, and especially if they're doing it on their back porch, you know, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty difficult to enforce as it is. And, and really what the legislation would do is, I think, be more restrictive on the, the types of community cat caregivers that actually are more engaged and trying to do this in a uh, thought-out manner that is uh, really focused on, on the sterilization and vaccination of those cats. Okay. We have and, a, and the, Arlen, we have a couple yeah, of yeah. questions. We want to just, uh, Dave, you go, do you have a question for, for Arlen? Well, I, I guess maybe when we talk about community cats, are, it feels like we're celebrating feral cats. Well, some people maybe do celebrate that. <laughs> like, if I want to own a cat, you, like, I should be a cat owner. I'm not sure at having a bunch of feral cats running around, even if they are vaccinated and neutered uh, or spayed. I, I'm not sure. Does that – what's the benefit of having rampant yeah, cats? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, if you haven't worked in animal control or within an animal shelter, this probably this whole concept I understand can seem kind of obscure. Yeah. And and, and the reality is, you do want cat owners that are responsible, that are keeping their cats indoors, that are having their cats be sterilized. Um, that is the ideal situation. The reality is, we have uh, decades and decades of proof that not everybody does that. Right. And cats do tend to roam freely, even if they are owned. They're uh, often less likely than dogs to be sterilized, and therefore they're having litters upon litters in the community. And, and, and our approach for years and years was to try to pick up all those cats and you know, essentially maybe exterminate them at the local animal shelter. And that hasn't proved effective in bringing down those free-roaming cat populations. So a community cat program, a trap, neuter, vaccinate, return program, is really focused on 
identifying where the cats are, you know, what's the food source that's sustaining them, because sometimes it's not a person uh, directly. I mean, there, there could be other things drawing cats to a certain area. But then, you know, recognizing their feeding schedule, that they are nocturnal, using food as a means to trap them all. And then you do sterilize them. And that's an ongoing effort to reduce the, the population over time. So that if you're just catching a few cats here and there, they'll overbreed and you can end up with more cats. If you're really deliberate and engaging those community members that care about the cats uh, in this type of effort, you do bring the population down over time. And that really is the goal, not to have free roaming cats everywhere, but to reduce the population of free roaming cats through these managed type programs. Arlen, we've got about 30 seconds. This is Arlen Bradshaw. He's the Senior Advisor for Community Relations at Best Friends Animal Society. Uh, talking to him about this proposal on Utah's Capitol Hill uh, to create a scenario where folks who want to feed stray cats could only do so during the day. And and that is my point. The, the lawmaker, Ken Ivory, who we're expecting to call in any moment now, um, will will allow these cats to be fed during the day. So why, why is that not a good compromise? Why not just during the day and, and settle on that? Yeah, well, with only 30 seconds, you have two main points. Number one, if you're worried about nuisances involving the cats, if you're feeding them only during daylight hours, that's going to increase uh, the chances that they're going to interact with, with the general population with people, okay. <laughs> which uh, theoretically we don't want to do. Number two, uh, cats more generally are nocturnal in terms of they, they do tend to want to feed at night. And, and a, a huge component of these programs is trapping those cats. So recognizing that they're naturally going to want to, to eat at night and being able to put traps out uh, that are humane, um, but that are going to draw them into those traps so that they can get sterilized and vaccinated, that success rate is much higher at nighttime hours than it would be during the day. Okay. Arlen Bradshaw, thank you for joining us from Best Friends Animal Society. We're going to take calls. Hopefully we get a call from the lawmaker. We, we scheduled him to, to call the show as well, so hopefully he can uh, make that phone call to us any moment so we can get his take on this. Um, but let's take your calls. Should we stop feeding stray cats? <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's kind of funny. It's, I don't know why that – should we stop feeding stray cats? <laughs> 801-575-TALK. Dave and Dujanovic. Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with David Dejanovic. We've reached out to the stray cats across the Salt Lake Valley and we're waiting for comment back as to what they feel about HB 505. It would prohibit, if it's passed, uh, the feeding of stray cats during the nighttime hours. Um, people who want to feed stray cats could only feed them during the day. <laughs> it's a little strange that we're talking about feeding well, straight su- cats. Super strange because this proposal is bubbing, bubbling up on the last week of the legislative session. And I'd like to think that lawmakers had, I mean, I'm going to really anger cat lovers here, more important things to do than deal with this issue. But we just heard from Best Friends Animal Society and they're worried about this. They're like, it makes more sense. To <laughs> not, feed them at night, yeah. To feed them at night because they're nocturnal. They made they made a pretty good point. I'll be honest. They the, the idea was if we feed them at night, the idea is they're going to get caught. We're going to capture them. We're going to trap them. Where we take them to the shelter, 
We vaccinate them, we spay them, we neuter them, and then we return them. That is the program. That is the idea. And It's not your neighbor, which is leaving food out for stray cats and attracting rats. Except that's kind of what happens, right? Oh. People, they see stray cats. your neighbor? Like, literally, who's enforcing this? No. The cat police? And she's oh, the sweetest. The dog police. But let's, definitely. But this is what she did. She would leave out, my neighbor would leave out cat food. And she was feeding these stray cats. In her mind, in reality, she was feeding the neighborhood rats. Yeah. They were coming out every night. Gave her purpose. It could have been purpose. They were also like sewer-sized New York style rats. Stay tuned for the knockdown drag out between Dave and I that's going to happen in about five minutes from now when we talk about indoor versus outdoor cats when you're a cat owner. Uh, Let's get to our phone lines. On fire. Rob from Salt Lake City. Should we be feeding stray cats or make them feeding them after dark illegal? You know what? I think kind of what the point you said, too, is like, okay, so they make it illegal. Who's going to fight? How are they going to know, you right. know, for sure. one? Secondly, I think you shouldn't feed the, st- the cats. I think that just makes more cats. And realistically, like what you're saying, you don't know what's coming to eat that at night. Yeah. But if you didn't feed them at night, then wouldn't it be easier for them to trap them because they wouldn't have other sources of food? They could, they'd go to where the traps were and be caught mm-hmm. and taken care of. Coming out of the hills because they're starving like the deer. Uh, thanks, Rob, for your phone call. How about, is it Carmeli or Carmel? Did I say that right? Carmel from Orem? Yes. Beautiful name. Yes. Carmel. Love your name. Thank you. Um, I have started about three years ago. I live in a nice neighborhood. I have uh, condos and apartments where people move and abandon their cats. Um I started when I found a litter of kittens under my shed, and I didn't really know what to do. Basically, I've been—I asked for help from a best, well, from a feral six community of, for Utah County, and I have trapped and fixed probably twelve cats. They have not all survived. Um, I, but most of them now stay right around my yard, right around my back area. Um, they don't go very far, honestly. I feed them in the morning and I feed them at night, and then I bring the bulls in so that there aren't other cats. I know they have helped with the mouse population because there's a storage unit not far. Mm-hmm. Um it may not be the best situation, but I feel like I have done my best. Every cat that I have has been fixed and returned, and they all stay local. You are a um, you are a good you are a good soul, Carmel. Uh, but if this legislation passed, you would not be able to leave those bowls out at night. That's my read of it. Well, at some point, they're just your cats, right? <laughs> Lisa from Harriman, uh, what do you think? Should we uh, not be allowed to feed stray cats uh, after the sun goes down? I think it's a ridiculous bill. Personally, I think we've got much better things to be focusing on. However, that said, I didn't know anything about community cats. I knew nothing about this until several years ago, probably 10 years ago, when I built my barn. Uh, At that point, I lived in West Jordan, and there were a lot of mice. 
voles, in fact. Mm. And as more construction occurred and more and more of this uh, kind of field area was developed, there became skunks and it became a real problem. I had a friend who had told me about community cats and I thought, what are you even talking about? <laughs> I was like, you guys, oh, they're stray cats, right? Just glorified you know, yeah. animals that you feed and take care of that they're your pets, but they're not your pets. And that's just not the case. This program, um, I, I was able to uh, get a community cat. They notch their ears, everything what this other lady was talking about. So it's visible. You can tell when it's a community cat versus a stray. And that's a really visible way because they just ah. have a little notch in their ear. And I'll tell you what, that tomcat took on a skunk. Now, it got sprayed. That was ugly and gross. But it's much better to have cats keeping down the voles and the mice. And they're a little bit territorial, taking on those skunks. I would much rather have community cats and not have the pests. Yeah. Now that I'm in Harriman, we have snakes. And so I'm like, I I want more just to keep the snakes <laughs> away, too. Um, but my point was the feeding thing. It's it's so ridiculous. I can't even believe we have to talk about this. I I would not have feed on my porch that just, you know, these are yeah. community cats. They're somewhat feral. I, that just to me is nonsense. And so I had it in my barn loft. And I'd fill it up once a month, and that's what I did. And these cats came and went, and they are predators. They like to hunt. I like that about them. Yeah, they they love to hunt. In fact, uh, I I was reading about rats. Debbie, if you want to just be terrified, (sighs) like if you want to know why I have a cat, it's because I read this stat. Did you know that a female rat typically gives birth to six Litters a year, not if they're consisting of twelve rat pups. That is sixty rat pups birthed by one rat. Oh, okay. Okay, in a year, rats. It all rhymes. Um, uh, yuck. Okay, Larry. So rats can absolutely just explode. So having cats, community cats, to to hold down that population, it's almost worth it for me. Okay, so Larry, I'm sorry. You've been waiting forever. Uh, how about if I give you 20 seconds? Go. What? That's more than I usually need. Anyway, Utah's always wasting so much money. They're going to hold, you know, all this money on salt, the Great Salt Lake, uh, that yeah. muck hole up there. It wouldn't bother me if it dried up and blew away. But uh, these crazy laws, they keep coming, you know, feed the cats at night. It's ridiculous. Uh, uh, Australia killed all their feral cats, and they got overrun with vermin. Well, yeah, and I think that's the concern, right? Indoor, outdoor cat, Dave. Oh, total all day outdoor cat. I cannot believe you do that. I love my outdoor Mm -hmm. cat. The last time I had an outdoor cat, I came home and found Jade, and this is twenty some odd years ago, maybe twenty five, thirty years ago, deceased. And it broke my heart. Yeah, she was outdoors, and and I, I'll never. I'll, I've always had indoor cats ever since. Why? What value your, does an indoor cat provide? Cuddly, sweet. That's it. My cat she hunts. Speaks to me. My cat hunts. Provides a service to our neighborhood. You're welcome. Dave and Dujanovic have inside sources. So, who do you think will be on the Republican ticket? For 2024. 
Um, let's let's go over some options here. How about former Governor Nikki Haley? I mean, she just announced. This is not the America that called to my parents. And make no mistake, this is not the America I will leave to my children. Uh, how about this long shot candidate, 37 years old, anti-woke activist. How do you say that name? Vivek? Yeah, Vivek Ramaswamy. Well done. That's, that's, that's a mouthful. Uh, he threw his hat in the ring as well. That is what American exceptionalism is all about. And that is what we will need to revive to save this great nation. Right now, it feels like we have some toe dippers. Just, you know, testing the water. But there's a ginormous 800-pound gorilla sitting in the room. And until someone can prove that Donald Trump is not the man, I'm afraid he's still the man for the Republican Party. Uh, Boyd, as we bring you into the conversation, I watched Sunday edition with Doug Wright, and he had Senator Mitt Romney on. And I watched till the very end. And this was when I was like, oh, no, Uh, here's his prediction for who will be at the top uh, of the list of the Republican nominee for for president. Look, I I didn't think uh, Donald Trump would become the nominee of the Republican Party back in 2016. Uh, He did. And at this stage, I think he's by far the most likely to become our nominee in 2024. I think Joe Biden is by far the most likely to become the Democratic nominee. So if you ask me to say what I think is going to happen, I think it'll be Biden versus Trump. Boyd, Biden versus Trump. Now, a recent poll just says 37 percent of Democrats want Biden. 51 percent of Republicans want Trump. That the numbers are always interesting, and uh, this is very early, early in the game. Uh, and so one of the things that we have to, to remember at this stage is that everything is going to change multiple times. Uh, you have to remember, in uh, going into 2020, at this point, Joe Biden was getting ready to drop out of the race. He was only polling in, in the teens. Yes. Uh, and so everything can change in, in a heartbeat in this kind of thing. Now, uh, to your point in terms of, of where things are, yet yeah, President Trump, uh, has a base uh, that is solid. Uh, and so you look at that and say, okay, if it is a big field, that clearly plays to his advantage. And people should remember that President Trump won the nomination for the Republicans without ever getting a majority. It wasn't a majority of Republicans that said he's our nominee. Uh, and so, again, large field, that favors him because he has a solid base of about 23%. Uh, so that's a big advantage to him. But but what Mitt Romney's comment said to me when he was talking to Doug Wright is that there's nobody else. There's He didn't say maybe Ron DeSantis, maybe Nikki Haley. I mean, he was pretty clear, right? Look, I, I didn't think uh, Donald Trump would become the nominee of the Republican Party back in 2016. Uh, he did. And at this stage, I think he's by far the most likely to become our nominee in 2024. So I think. At, so Joe at this Biden stage, at this stage, okay. So, but but, but who who's coming in? Uh, I don't think we even know yet. I don't. Okay. Th- I, I don't think we have a clue who's going to have that magical moment on a debate stage. We don't know who's going to have a social media moment. We don't know if Ron DeSantis is going to have a grand meltdown. Uh, I would keep your eye on that. Uh, definitely a possibility. And so all of these things are going to ebb and flow. Remember what everybody was talking about? Beto O'Rourke. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was the guy. He was on the he was on the cover of every major national publication, every newspaper, every website in the country. Again, what this says to me and is can't Repub- win. And Republicans can't win don't know. 
Nobody they, knows. Nobody knows. But but nobody knows. shouldn't we have an idea by now of no. who the next? No, we really. We, no, we have bet- between 2016 and 2020. Uh, 2020, the Democrats had a huge field. 2016, the Republicans had a huge field, mm-hmm. bigger than we've had in a long, long time. Uh, and that really mixes things up because it's hard to get traction. Who has enough money? Nikki Haley might have a great message. But she doesn't have any campaign cash. How is she going to sell the message? Well, and Senator Tim, Romney didn't bring her name up. Yeah. Tim Scott uh, doesn't have any name ID right now, but he's got $21 million in the bank. You can make you can make some noise with, with that kind of cash rolling in. And so it's just very early in the stages. And I think what Senator Romney was pointing to is, look, at this stage, the former president has a base. No one else really has a base right now that they can say, yep, there it is. I think what Senator Romney was also saying was, Look, it is way more likely for the former president to lose if it's a one-on-one or a one-on-three kind of match as opposed to a President Trump versus the field of 16. Uh, And that's kind of where that is. But there's also some really interesting things that are emerging. So you've sort of had this uh, never-Trump movement that started back in 2016 and continued on through. Uh, You have sort of the anybody-but-Trump movement. Folks who are saying, yeah, he's okay on some of these things. There is a new group emerging. We've been talking to some some pollsters nationally about this, uh, Democrat and Republican pollsters alike. And there is a group emerging within the Republican Party that are really being – they're starting to be labeled post-Trump. So they supported the former president. They really liked the policies that were done during that, and they think it's time to move on. And that's actually growing uh, and so to me, that's going to be one of the dynamics mm. that we have to watch in the coming months is this post-Trump of, thank you, Mr. President, love the policies, it was a great ride, and next. next. <laughs> okay, so part of the next, which is a little bit of a, a a repeat, and this is what Doug Wright asked on on Sunday edition, he said, could you, Mitt Romney, who lost to Barack Obama in 2012, uh, could you run again? in 2024 and this is what senator romney said are you gonna run again oh well that's a decision i'll be making uh clearly i want some help uh, no i appreciate your help on that but i want to see you know what can i do going forward what's my agenda what kinds of things can i get through congress and is there some meaningful work that i can do with the prospect of success and that'll be part of my process i'll i'll have an answer for you sometime uh well before this year's over it wasn't a no no, and uh, but I think he's relating to the Senate. Run. That's what I thought yeah, too. Yeah, this is definitely relating to the Senate. There was a few months ago where KSL News Radio Lin- Lindsey Ertz toured an, a polling place with Senator Romney yeah. and asked him that specific question yeah. um, be, uh, regarding the, the a presidential yeah. run, and he was very clear. And I thought that was an important moment that she'd had with him, and so we brought her live on the air. So I I feel as though he was I misheard referring. that I totally misheard yeah, he, it because I, I was I was making the connection of do you do you run for president again because I I think there is a a movement for again maybe it's an, a never Trumper or a post Trumper or anybody but Trump whatever it might be but I thought oh yeah I don't I don't see him getting in the the presidential race so the interesting thing to watch with Senator Romney uh, so he has a book coming out in October. Always an interesting time for a book to come out, uh, rolling into a uh, an election cycle. Uh, and the book is titled Reckoning. Hmm. Uh, and uh, it will be a very fascinating book. He's given uh, McKay Coppins access to tweets and texts and emails, oh. uh, pretty unprecedented. And so the question to me for Senator Romney will really be, is that book going to be the mic drop moment <laughs> and, and be done? 
or is that the theme for what he hopes to do uh, running for a second term? Well, we'll leave it at that. Fascinating. That's quite a tease. Tune in in October. When we <laughs> Access to his Pierre Delecto tweets. <laughs> his hey, burner account. Speaking of uh, KSL News Radio's Lindsay Ertz, she's uh, on the hill for us for the final week, the last few days of the 2023 general session of the Utah legislature. She's joining us in a matter of minutes with what's on her radar as we count down to midnight. Eye on the Hill 2023. Special coverage with David Dijanovic. We're excited to be marching you up to the final hours of the 2023 legislative session. And there's so much to cover in just a short window of time left that KSL News Radio's Lindsay Ertz will be joining us every day at this time with what she's got her eye on. Yeah, and I I really want to build it around a video that went viral uh, from Representative Sandra Hollins. Uh, and and I want to play some of this, Debbie and and Lindsay, as you as you join us, can you help set this up? Because uh, we're going to play a good chunk of of her uh, response to a proposed bill. Uh, can you set that up for us yeah. a little bit? So this bill is HB four fifty one. It's still working its way. Nope, I should say it actually just failed to get out of a Senate committee this okay. very morning. So okay. that is a very major development. Is that this bill will no longer be heard in the legislature? It failed to make it through a Senate committee, but it did pass the House. And on Friday, it was heard on the House floor. And uh, what this bill would do would basically prevent any school, public, higher education, or our schools from asking an applicant anything about their work related to uh, it, it, uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. So just so just to be clear, if somebody were applying for a job or a scholarship or um, some something like a research project or something like that through the state through the state, yeah, it would prevent the institution public school, uh, higher ed um, university from asking what role diversity has played in their job development? Yes. Okay. So let's listen to Sandra Hollins, Representative Sandra Holland's response as she was sitting on the floor. I should also point out that Representative Hollins is the only black member of the legislature. I rise in opposition to this bill. And I have been sitting here thinking and thinking and thinking since yesterday about what I'm going to say. Because yesterday, my phone was blowing up with community members asking me the question, what is going on at the Capitol? We have all of these bills around DEI um, that is going through the Capitol. What is happening? I had a doctor ask me, I'm out here recruiting students of color to come to Utah to study medicine and hope, hope that they will stay there. And we will have a variety of doctors of, of, from different backgrounds and different ethnicities here so that our community will feel safe going to the doctor's office. I don't know what to tell them. I honestly don't know what to tell them. I have people who are saying to me, didn't Utah sign a racial compact? What is going on? I honestly don't know what to say. And if I have to be honest, I'm tired. I'm more than tired physically. I'm tired spiritually and mentally from fighting. It seemed like we keep taking two steps forward and going five steps back. I don't know what the fear is. There's not enough of us in this state 
that we could be running these bills because there is fear that somehow some people are going to be left out of, of something. I don't know what it is. I honestly don't know what it is. I don't know what to tell my community anymore. I don't know how to make them feel safe anymore. I have parents who are calling me because they're, and young people who are telling me they no longer feel safe in our school system. I have teachers who are not feeling safe in our school system. I have professors who are not feeling safe. I don't know what to tell them. I have people who I'm working with organizations to try to bring diverse businesses here. And one of the things they want to know, do we feel safe? Are our children going to be safe? My question, my answer to them now is I don't know. I don't know. There's an effort to get rid of diversity in schools. There's a to get rid of inclusion in schools. I don't know what to say to them anymore. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. Very, very powerful yeah. statement. That was about two and a half minutes long. Uh, Representative Sandra Holland um, opposing this legislation, which just failed this morning, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it's not it's not going anywhere this session. Right. It's not going to go anywhere this session. That is a major development um, in this bill. But, you know, I wanted to hear really the argument and why this bill was run in the first place. And it was run by Representative Katie Hall. And and really her main argument is that some people are feeling like when you ask those types of questions about diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's a quote unquote right way they have to answer it. And if they don't answer it the right way, they feel judged because they may be considered racist when they're not. But maybe that's not what she wants them all to be focused just on their work. That's that's kind of the way they feel. They feel like they're being judged based on the way that they answer this particular question and that they feel like they have had to have been some sort of an activist for something that, that they, are, they believe in diversity, they believe in inclusion, but, but it just rises to the level of this personal political belief that they felt like they had to defend themselves as not being... It's not a very... Not, this is my view... Um, for Representative Hall's statement there. It's not a very strong reason for running legislation that would prohibit organizations, state institutions from asking that question of a job applicant. We get asked all kinds of questions on a job application, and if uh, they find it to be an important question to ask, they should be able to ask it. And and we should be able to answer, answer that question. I know if I had to fill out an application, what I would say if I were being asked that very question, and I would think people who are applying for a job um, would 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 know what they could say to 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 qualify and make sure that question was answered appropriately. Well, when, when I listen, and again, I haven't spoken to Representative Hall, but what I heard was that there is her concern is when you ask these kind of questions about diversity, equity, and inclusion, that there is one type of answer that is acceptable. So, for example, if you said, uh, what do you think, what are your thoughts about diversity, that there would be a certain way to answer that that question that is socially acceptable. And, and for example, if, if you were to say something like, I believe much more in diversity of thought versus diversity of race gender, sexual orientation, something like that, that maybe that is an inappropriate way to, to react to that. So the, the argument would be, well, don't ask it if, if you are only looking for one answer. Hmm. Um, so, that's one way. Yes. That I, no, I, I think can... you're both right. You're both on the different arguments of, yeah. of why this well, bill was so. I think if you're so... applying for a job 
and you want that job, you ought to be able to answer how you have brought diversity and inclusion to another job and how you can bring that to the job you're applying for. Yeah. And and those are both sides of the argument for sure. There is another bill that also deals with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I just want to mention this one. This one would have prevented um, offices in the higher education system. So colleges and universities in Utah from uh, having offices of diversity, equity, inclusion. And the sponsor argued that, um, these offices sometimes promote social agendas more so than institutions should be based on academics. That was his statement to us on Friday. This bill also uh, was recommended it be study over the interim. So it won't be moving forward this session, but it's another one of those bills that deals with this diversity, equity, and inclusion that the legislature is running this year. Uh, Lindsay Ertz, KSL's Radio, covering Capitol Hill as we tick down to the final hours of the legislative session and um, just a peek behind the curtain who is, who are the who's puppeteering these lawmakers Lynn is there is there some group some organization are they in state out of state that are contacting our lawmakers and demanding that they get bills filed with a you know and and, and open up a bill file on these I have no idea okay. I have no idea okay. if that's actually happening but what I can tell you is Senator maybe John, it's not maybe well, I think puppeteering up with is a harsh word maybe so maybe so but who's who's re- asking this of lawmakers do we know what groups it, or individuals it certainly seems like diversity equity and inclusion have been made into a hot button issue that perhaps you know and even the sponsor representative Hall argued this she said these words on their own aren't bad but they've become a they've become a hot button issue and it it's kind of curious when you're like wait a second when did diversity equity and inclusion become something that wasn't allowed well as we heard from representative hollands though she she said in her her final statement or final part of her statement that there there is an effort to get rid of diversity in schools uh if if that's a perception if that's a reality whatever it, it might be um it has become a very divisive issue. It's been very difficult to talk about diversity in a in a positive way, where two sides can have a a discussion or a debate without it turning hurtful. And I think that's kind of what we're struggling with a little bit right now. We're trying to figure out how do we have conversations, how do we have discussions without it turning either political or hurtful. Lynn's. Amazing work as always. You got anything on the on your plate for today? Oh, guys, I got all the things okay. on my plate for today. Okay. So I'm going to go talk with Senate leadership here in about a half an hour to see what else is on the agenda for today. But we just a quick note: we don't have any settle uh, anything settled on taxes yet. We don't have the food sales tax settled. We don't have the social media bill settled yet. So we've got a lot to do in the next week. And but they're dealing with stray cats. Yeah, but they feral are cats de- feral cannot cats. be fed at night. Right. <laughs> they, that is on the agenda as well. Lindsay Ayer, KSL News Radio political reporter, Eye on the Hill as always. Always, thanks. We'll have you back tomorrow, same time. Straight ahead, uh, do you see this report uh, by the U.S. Department of Energy, Dave, uh, saying that uh, it's with low confidence, low confidence that it was a lab leak in China that sparked COVID. Let's dive into the details on that one. Dave Indigenovic. Dave Indigenovic. Special coverage of the top local story. Uh, if you tuned in at 9 o'clock off the top of the show, our top story was about these two barricaded siblings. Uh, one is a 12-year-old girl and her 15-year-old brother. Um, they've turned to TikTok, according to ProPublica, which uh, published a story about them over the weekend. 
defying a court order to return to their father, who they say abused them. Um, And they are barricaded inside, it looks like a bedroom, in their mom's home where they've been for weeks, Dave. And Deb, this is very unique in the sense that uh, the kids apparently are live streaming this, uh, almost daring police to come in and physically remove them to take them to their father. Uh, This is, I don't know if it's a game changer. I think... You know, police are in kind of an awkward situation here. Uh, Let's bring in uh, the attorney for their father, Ron Wilkinson, on the line live with us right now from the Heritage Law Firm out of Orem. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Wilkinson. Good morning. Uh, So give us the the dad's side of the story. I I read your statement in ProPublica, which published that article this weekend about these, these two children, and it seemed like you'd we're denying the allegations of abuse. Can you speak to that? Certainly. These have been allegations, many of which are over a decade old, that have been repeatedly investigated. They've expanded over time. They've been exaggerated with more outrageous claims uh, happening uh, whenever there seems to be motivation. The father's been through multiple assessments, including a psychosexual evaluation, a polygraph. He's been through three rounds of reunification therapy, everything that he can do to try to develop and and have a relationship with his son and his daughter. His hope is that they can have a relationship with both of their parents and have the benefit of healthy relationships into their adulthood. And what's happened has just been heartbreaking for him. What's the current arrangement? The current arrangement is that there's a court order, which I think uh, you've seen, that would order that the children be in the the father's care with uh, some good supervision and a safety plan in place that we believe to protect the father from further false allegations, but that would remove them from their current situation. The court has found, and I think appropriately, uh, Judge Poland was very measured in his approach that the evidence strongly supports the conclusion that the children are suffering harm while in their mother's care. They're not in school. They're not participating in normal activities that they should be. And the father just would like them to be able to have a normal childhood with a mom and a dad who love them and can support them. We're on the line live with Ron Wilkinson. He's an attorney for the father in this case of this custody dispute that we've been talking about this morning here on the show He's with Heritage Law Firm in Orem. And I want to go back to um, the discussion about uh, the abuse allegations. The article in ProPublica says in 2018 that the Division of Child and Family Services here in Utah found that the father um, had sexually and emotionally abused his children. Um, so what... How, what is your response to this allegation in this in this article that DCFS did find uh, abuse? Well, there have been multiple allegations over the course of, of many times uh, over the years. And it's our understanding that there was on one occasion a single worker who listened to uh, a therapist that had been involved and based on the discussions with that therapist uh, made that supported finding. Subsequent to that, there were experts assigned 
that reviewed all of the information and found that the children had been harmed, in fact, by the very therapist in terms of uh, having false memories, uh, recovered memories, and and that's been part of the exaggerated claims and, and, and really claims made out of whole cloth that have been very challenging. That's why the father went to the Great Lakes to complete the psychosexual evaluation, the polygraph, everything to make sure that, you know, going forward, he could have a relationship with his children and he could protect them from this very type of harm that has continually uh, con- continued to creep up. Does your client support uh, having the children removed, uh, I- even if the police have to use, quote-unquote, reasonable force? I, I think the judge took the best approach possible, uh, putting that uh, decision in the hands of the mother and the children in terms of it hopefully not having to having to rise to that Uh You know, I think one of the significant parts in the ruling that the judge found and my client believes is the judge's finding that the only way to recover the children from the psychological battlefield that they're in at their mother's home is to remove them from her care and place them in in his care and custody with the support of paternal family members. Mr. Wilkinson, with the, with the children seemingly, it would appear, still barricaded in the room or, or the home, if police don't go in, uh, what is your next legal move? Or do you have anything left? There are additional approaches. We're hoping that it, it doesn't come to that. But my client is very fearful of the harm the children are being subjected to, as well as the, the exposure uh, that they have, you know, with the choices that, that they're making to put this out there in a in a public forum, in ways that may have long term uh, negative effects. It is so. I mean, we were just talking, Dave and I were just talking about how unusual it is uh, with the TikTok issue. Yeah, the the live streaming issue, the posting on social media channels, uh, the accusations being made from the children against their father. How do you navigate this? It's it's one of the more challenging uh, cases that we've had to we've we've had to do you know handle. We usually get a couple cases a year that are very similar, uh, where there's false allegations and uh, you know children are, are able to to recover and do well. Hopefully, it's in a manner that allows both parents to be involved. Sometimes it requires a change of custody. I've had you know, several cases, even over the course of the past uh, few years, where the children have discussed later, after having recovered from that, uh, the the warfare, really, that they were under uh, and the pressure they were under to come up with false allegations and to make such claims. And my client's just hopeful that these children can can recover from this. And I think the only way for that to happen is for them to be removed from uh, that psychological battlefield, as Judge Poland noted. Ron Wilkinson, uh, attorney for the father in this custody dispute. Um, thank you so much for joining us live this morning to help walk us through um, your client's side of this this ongoing issue. And again, these two kids, 15-year-old brother, 12-year-old sister, appear to be barricaded inside their mom's home in Utah, um, 
my read of the ProPublica article, Dave, is that police have shown up at one point late last year, decided because of the complications in all of this to back out, not take the children at that point. The judge has issued an order um, that police can go in and use reasonable force to remove these kids. I don't think that's happened as of right now. Um, been watching the videos, and it seems as though they're still inside the home. Can you imagine uh, the emotional trauma going on right now from the mother's point of view, the father's point of view, the children? I mean, the, this is already an incredibly difficult situation, mm-hmm. custody battles. It's an incredibly difficult situation to go through. To add a live component to it, streaming it on social media accounts, mm-hmm. recording videos and posting them onto your social media networks, that adds a layer that is making it so public and putting so much pressure. It's almost like a pressure cooker right now. And and I hope that something reasonable can can happen because th- this is just a heartbreaking story. Yeah, I just in that conversation, continue to think about those kids. And probably shockingly common, Deb, across yeah. the country as, as parents uh, that are divorced and trying to deal with custody issues, uh, they they probably deal with this Have you ever known far anybody more than we, to oh, deal yeah. with me too? I was yeah, thinking about that when we were having that conversation yeah. with Mr. Wilkinson. I thought, yeah, I've had, I've known of, of personal situations yeah. and it's just, it's it's just the kids who are always just caught right in the middle. Um, we'll continue to follow this story as it continues to develop, uh, of course, right here on KS. Dave and Dujanovic, special coverage of the top national story. I don't think we have an answer to COVID yet. You may feel differently, Dave, after we walk through this Wall Street Journal report. Um, but the Wall Street Journal... Um, talked about this new report by the department, U.S. Energy Department, uh, saying it's got low confidence uh, that it was a leak from a lab in China um, that caused COVID-19. So you may feel like that's a more definitive answer to what caused it, but I feel as like, well, low confidence, what good is that report? Well, it's it's also very difficult when you when you're talking to government agencies, they don't use absolutes. This is definitely what happened. This is not what happened. Low confidence, no confidence. Media, I, it's it's a little bit wishy washy. Okay, so let me just walk you through what I know um, from reading this story in the Wall Street Journal that the FBI and now. The Energy Department, which you brought up a good point. I don't know why they're involved, but apparently they, they've got some people who know some stuff and understand this. So they've researched it, too. They're both kind of on this same page, that COVID has originated in the lab and jumped from the lab and overtook the world. Then there's this other working theory that other intelligence organizations are on board with within the U.S., and it has to do with that it just started naturally, like in the wild. I don't know, the wet market wild or just the wild in general, and then it it jumped to humans. So there's two working theories. I feel like if as I read this article, 
We still don't know what caused yeah. it for sure. Right. The problem is not that we know or will know definitively that it either happened naturally or that there was a lab leak of the coronavirus from Wuhan, China, right? The problem, and I think this is where a lot of people are are really frustrated and why this is such big news, is because early on when COVID was in full swing and we were trying to have this discussion and maybe it did leak from a lab in China, that was immediately shut down. It was censored on social media platforms and so-called experts uh, including Dr. Fauci himself, said, no, there's no credence to that, mm-hmm. right? Too well, soon? Was it too of soon? course it yeah. was too soon. Yeah. Like, what, we just accepted the official statement from China? Like, that's ridiculous, right? I, I don't know where it started, but the, the, the idea that within the first year of the coronavirus getting out, that we could definitively say that it did not leak from a China lab that was studying coronaviruses was so absurd to me. And I think part of what made is making people so frustrated with the way the coronavirus pandemic was addressed was people were coming in making definitive statements that they had no business Mm. making definitive statements on. Okay, so let's fast forward to year four, which we are now in. Does it matter to you personally to know where this started? Oh, that's a you know what? That's a great question. I knew yeah. you would I, you'd really react to that because that's what I'm thinking. Does it matter to you personally to know if it started in the wild and then yeah. it, it bound from whatever animal to whatever animal into the human nostril, or do you have to know that it started in a lab in Wuhan this for is, you to feel better about all yeah. this? This is why I think the the lab leak theory is. Um, is important. It, well, what's the terminolo- terminology? Gain of function research. Mm. That is what happens in the the lab. Oh, yeah. Where they take a virus, okay. they manipulate it, they change it, they try to learn more about mm-hmm. it by playing around with it. That's what the gain of function. That, that's the term, right? I'm yeah, remembering that yeah. correctly. Um, when a lab is involved, it's usually more than just looking at it under a microscope. If they're messing around mm-hmm. with it, making it less potent, making it more potent, whatever it, whatever is happening, we should know what is going on in that uh, lab. So we can get to that lab and say, knock it off. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that anymore. Or or have better controls. I understand scientists have to, to fiddle around with things. I understand that. I get it. But there should be some practices in place mm-hmm. that everybody follows you know, best practices. So we should know what's going on. So I was really curious to know if this was a lab leak. Was it like germ warfare? Right. I mean, is it we're we're creating this to then pepper the universe with it? And and they they said no. There's no evidence of that. So that's Again. what our theory I'm going with right now. Because otherwise, <laughs> yeah. I'd be too freaked out. That's uh, a great question to ask, though, Deb. Yeah. And and to say that China. It is in no way developing this as or weaponizing this. Yeah. Okay. Well, how do we know that? So I want to go back to the question I asked you. I'm going to ask it of myself. Does it matter to me if it start? And 
I'm just going to say no because, and here's my reason why it doesn't matter. Because to me, I, I can't, I can't re- undo what COVID did to me, which is still not a hundred percent of my sense of smell, nowhere near where I would like to be with my sense of taste. And then the exhaustion that wore on because I caught Delta and I was, I was vaxxed to the fullest extent that I could be at the time. And it just wiped me out. And I think in looking back on it, I realized it wiped me out for a lot longer than I gave it credit for. Yeah. And I had a hard time getting my energy back because you know me, I'm always, I'm a yeah. busy body. I'm always doing something. And I just found myself kind of tired, exhausted, yeah. not wanting to do things. And so having to pull myself up every day and get back out there and do the things I like to do after work. Um, so I muscled through it. So I am not waiting for the next alert to come over my phone for whatever agency decides to, to, to go and take a second look or third look or a fourth look for their definitive answer. Um, because I am at where I'm at with this thing. Yeah, and, and I want to focus on me, and I don't know how I'm going to get my sense of smell back and my sense of taste back, but I really, 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 really want it back. And it doesn't do me any good to think about how it got started yeah. and be angry about that. Well, I, I think I, I see where you're coming from. What I hear, and correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter to you because you are burned out. What's happened's happened. We've had this conversation. We've had this fight a million times. I think you could be my spokesperson on this one. Yep. But we should still care for this reason. There were a lot of mistakes made during the pandemic. A lot of mistakes Mm -hmm. from the scientific community, from us, just normal humans trying to process what was going on, how to interact with people. We have to be able to learn from the mistakes that were made. We have to be able to step aside now that we're not in the throes of it, not in the middle of it, and be able to objectively see where did we learn, where can we get better, And how can we not repeat these mistakes in the future? Maybe not even just pandemic-related, but health-related in general. I think it's a very important conversation to have. It's on his radio. A report next on Friday. Kaysville. Meow. Good luck. Call in four minutes. It's legal in three minutes. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.